This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. But let's start with the with the Boxing Day situation. A number of years ago, I've only ever once done the Boxing Day thing, like in the real way that you're supposed to do Boxing Day, and that is you get to the big box store. It was when Future Shop was still up in the Ancaster Power Center before it became Best Buy. And there was a camera that I wanted to get, and it was half price. It was going to be 250 bucks instead of 500 So I said, I got to get that camera. I lined up at 3 in the morning, and I was already about the 50th person in line. And it was freezing cold. It was so cold. They opened at 6. By the time we moved in, I couldn't even feel my feet. It was just freezing. But here's the problem. The lineup started out as typical Canadian civilized thing. You lined up in the front of Future Shop, and if you can picture the Ancaster Power Center, the line eventually extended all the way from Future Shop in front of Sport Sport Check, and eventually got all the way to Michael's. But as soon as the Future Shop people opened their door, all civilization broke down, and there was no lineup anymore. People were just rushing the door. It, It was, I said, that's it. I'm never doing that again. I can't deal with that stuff. But apparently... Many, many people can. There are reports that there was huge turnouts at malls and stores across the country. Uh, the, the high point may have been at Yorkdale in Toronto, where they said 120,000 people were in that mall yesterday. So the question is, is this good news or bad news? Well, it, it, on its face, it says, well, sure, it's good news. People are out shopping. But is it good news? Ian Lee is uh, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He is a uh, an expert in the whole world of finance, and I don't know if he's an expert in Boxing Day shopping. Ian, are you an expert in Boxing Day shopping? Well, uh, I've got the hard numbers on uh, online shopping versus in-store shopping. So, I mean, that's that's getting pretty close. And we do have the, the stats, and I'm sure people have heard it before, that about 40% of the total retail sales occur in the 60 days before Christmas. So shopping is still heavily um, influenced uh, by, um, whether online or, or in store, is still heavily influenced by season. So in other words, the Christmas season is the uh, is where stores, where businesses make their money. Sure enough, and, and what I was saying as well as that, we're going to get to all that, are you personally the boxing the, the boxing day expert? Are you the guy out there elbowing people out of the way to no, get the good stuff? Now I understand your question. Okay. <laughs> no, experientially, to use a nice fancy academic term, no, I try and avoid uh, uh, boxing day sales like the plague, like the bubonic plague. Yeah. <laughs> you know, either I don't want someone to ram my car or to punch me in the nose, or and I have enough stuff in my house anyways. Although I did in the past. I was in my We've all day. tried it. Oh, yes. Oh, We've yes. all tried it. That was... Uh, it was quite the uh, the daunting experience. It was almost as uh, as aggressive as when I played on the high school football team in uh, high school many years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Uh, except you didn't get uh, a large screen TV when you left the field, probably. <laughs> exactly so. Exactly so. Although it didn't cost you as well. L- let me ask you that: when when you we hear about these large crowds, and in some cases, I mean, one hundred twenty thousand people in one plaza, one mall, sounds yes, enormous yes, to me. Yes. Um, does that suggest? an economy that is really healthy because we've got all these people out that are shopping now after Christmas, or does it suggest something other than that because we're all holding back and waiting for the stuff to go on sale? I think the, uh, the former, that is to say the, uh, when you look at the, um, the, uh, regionality, and I mean by that, what parts of the country, uh, do you see, 
the most uh, the largest numbers of shoppers out in the stores, uh, you know, deluging the uh, overrunning the stores. And it's Toronto, for example, which has a very robust economy, whereas Edmonton and of course Alberta is is going through a, an enormous amount of pain and hurt, not just because of the fires. That's the least of their problems, in my view. It's because the price of uh, of oil has collapsed, and they were they're, they're such an oil and gas dependent economy, and so the unemployment rate has gone through the roof in um, in Alberta, and so you see that in the malls. That is to say, mall numbers are way down, whereas in the in the strongest economies, the numbers are way up. So I think it's it's really a um, a very nice um, indicator or proxy for um, how well is that uh, city or region doing. So in the uh, the uh, the stronger regions and the uh, one areas of the country that are doing very well, uh, you see a lot more people out in the malls uh, than you do in the areas of the country where things are not uh, are not so rosy. But whether the economy is great or whether the economy is struggling, there are always crowds at Boxing Day. Does it? I mean, does Boxing Day really fluctuate that much, or has it always just, or at least for the last number of decades, always been pretty consistent? It's been pretty consistent uh, because people understand, you know, consumers are rational. I, I've long believed that, and I mean, that may not sound very profound, but there is this view right now in economics by some people, a behavioral economics, to use the fancy term, that says, well, we're really not that rational. We think we are, but we're not. And I'm a big critic of that school of thought. I really do believe we are generally rational, uh, most of us. Most of us, most of the time, are generally rational. Not to say that we don't have emotions and that our emotions can't sometimes, occasionally get the better of us. But most of the time we're rational. You know, you want to buy a house, so you say, i got to save up money to buy a house. That's kind of rational, isn't it? And so where I'm going with this is that people understand uh, that after Christmas Day, uh, the, uh, the businesses have inventory on hand, and they have to move that inventory because the, the deadest sales period of the year, we know this, everyone knows this, Either you know it statistically because you study stats like I do, the StatsCan data, or you know it because you are a shopper. And you know that in January and February, the stores are empty. I mean, they're just empty. And uh, there's nobody going shopping, uh, partly because the weather is really horrible and partly because people are all tapped out because they spent the money before Christmas. So under, consumers understand that. So they know that these stores, chains, or individuals are going to be discounting significantly their unsold inventory. Well, that's rational to go up because you know you can get some pretty good deals. And uh, so that's why people are going out there in large numbers on Boxing Day and that week, uh, you know, following Christmas, because there's a lot of inventory out there that those companies do not want to carry for another three or six months because inventory costs money. And, you know, I was going to ask you about that because there was a time, certainly, when you would have less chain stores, you would have ma and pa stores or you would have in, independent stores. And when they would bring in all their inventory, they did have to get rid of that stuff to bring in the new product. Is that the same today? Is that the same driving force behind the sales? Or, or Because, you know, let's use Best Buy as an example. Best Buy yeah. brings in a bunch of stuff, but they can move it to a different store where there's a need or back to their warehouse. They don't need to move that stuff at discount prices, do they? Uh-huh. Yes and no. I mean, to first answer your question, I think the big chains have an advantage because they can invest in very expensive, um, large-scale computers with really powerful software, very similar to the airlines, by the way, that try to predict your demand based on the time of the year. 
So the airlines have really good software. You know, they know that in January flights to the south, you know, jump by whatever it is, 50%, 80%, 200%, whatever. And they know that certain locations, they decline. And so they scale back accordingly to try to fit supply to demand. Well, likewise, the, the big chain stores with the, who've got the deep pockets and the resources can hire these IT programmers and very powerful, expensive computer systems, whereas a small entrepreneur business person, including people listening to your program right now, they have to do it more seat of the pants. And when I say seat of the pants, they're doing it on their experience and their knowledge of the business that they're running, that they own. And I'm not at all putting that down uh, at all. But, you know, there's no substitute for good, hard data, you know, I've, I've long believed. And, and so as a consequence, to answer your question about the, the Best Buys, yes, they can move it around. But, you know, the whole country is affected by this, this phenomenon I just described. That is to say, after Christmas, sales drop precipitously. And I'm talking January, February, March. It's, it's the worst season of the year for, uh, for, shop, for retail sales. And uh, so... You know, so you move your back to the to the warehouse. You move it back to, to another store. It doesn't matter. You still <laughs> you still got to finance it if it's unsold. And uh, so I think they're getting better at managing their inventory and managing how much they order. But at the same time, you know, it's that same that old old old. Uh, and I'm not a marketing person. I'm, I teach strategy, but it's you know, there's a lot of similarity between strategy and, and, and marketing. And there's that old you know adage in retail sales when you talk to retailers. Uh, you know, uh, in retail, you can't sell something if it's not on the floor. If it's stocked out, you're going to lose the sale. And so, you know, yes, they know that when bringing in the inventory, they may bring in too much, and they've got to carry it and maybe discount it after. But the only the only thing worse than doing that is not having the inventory there in the first place to make the sale. You mentioned having it on the floor, and this is the part of Boxing Day that I'm really surprised at. When we hear about these numbers that are... Again, enormous numbers in some of these places. I figured that by now, more and more and more people would have said, I, I just don't have the energy, the enthusiasm, the whatever you want to call it, to go to the mall. But you know what? I can buy basically everything that I want to get online. I can sit at home in my pajamas on Boxing Day morning. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, my, I bought something on the Boxing Day sale from a retailer on Christmas Eve, because their Boxing Day sales started early, I didn't have to go out of the house. Yeah. I can't believe that there are still this many people that want to go out to the stores rather than online. Is this simply because people still love to feel what they're going to buy and hold it in their hands, or is it a, a failure in some ways of online sales, or, or what's going on with that? Uh, first off, um, let me just step back for a moment to give the big picture. Uh, and I, I'm a big believer in online sales. Uh, I mean, I, I do it myself. I, you know, I've used Amazon a lot, and they're not the only company. But there is this hype out there you get. You read about it all the time that, you know, retail uh, uh, e-commerce sales are just skyrocketing, and the malls are all doomed, and they're all going to become, you know, <laughs> yeah. graveyards. And, and yeah. what are we going to do with all those real estate, all those malls out there that are empty once they fail and go bankrupt because no one's going to go shopping anymore? And, and so what I'm trying to say is I think there's an awful lot of uh, exaggeration around e-commerce. Right now, just to put some big picture numbers on it, the, the, uh, the, in Canada, we're talking about 5% of retail sales are e-commerce. That's now, it, eh? Wow. Yeah. Now, it's scheduled to go up. It's scheduled to go up to maybe 10% in the next several years. That means 90% of sales will still be in those proverbial um, dead shopping centers. And and I think there's a, re- and I'm not again poo-pooing uh, e-commerce. 
I think it, it's, it, you know, it's very powerful in certain areas for certain types of products. You know, electronic products, you know, cameras and that sort of thing, and, and PCs um, and CDs, if you're still buying CDs and movies and that sort of thing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, it, it's a very good niche. But notice I said the word niche. Even in the States, where the, it's more uh, acceptable than anywhere else in the world, e-commerce is only up to 10% of total retail sales. Again, that means 10% is a very good, significant chunk. Let's not trivialize it. But that means that 90% or 9 out of 10 retail dollars are still spent in stores. People like to shop. People like to, It's a social experience. It's not just an economic uh, transaction. It's, people like the social experience. You, know, you drive to the mall, you park the car, you walk around, maybe you have a coffee at the local Starbucks or whatever coffee shop is there, and you, know, you try on some clothes in the dressing room. Online is a completely depersonalized experience. Now, if you're just looking for, you know, I want to get the best deal, I just, um, full, full disclosure, I just ordered a Canon camera, uh, the, uh, the Rebel 5. So I'd already done my research, and I priced it out online, and I got a really, really good price from Amazon. Okay, and by the way, I do not have any shares in Amazon, and I don't consult <laughs> to anybody in the retail industry, so this isn't a plug. And uh, so I didn't need to have a social experience to <laughs> go into a shopping mall to find a camera. I just ordered it online, and boom, 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 and it came like three days later, and I was happy. But yet at the same time, I go into shopping malls like millions of other people, and I want clothing. I have never ordered clothing online, and I cannot imagine ever ordering clothing online. I mean, I want to try the stuff on to see if it fits. <laughs> and, and not only does it fit, because, you know, as we all know, clothing measurements are imprecise. You know, they say it's a 16 neck, and you try it on, and you can't do up the button, and you try the next one on, and the 16 is way too flabby. It's too loose, and so on and so forth. But it's not just that. You want to stay in front of the mirror. You have your wife there, your, your girlfriend, whatever, and you want them to, you know, look at you wearing it, and does this look okay, especially buying a suit or something. So you want that personal, almost tactile experience. You want to touch the material. You want to have someone look at you wearing the material and so forth. So uh, what, I'm tr- what I'm arguing is that there's lots of, of retail sales that I don't believe will ever be deconstructed by electronic uh, e-commerce. And I'm using the best example is groceries. And I know that they're trying, a lot of companies are trying to get, you know, gro- you know grocery.com and we'll deliver it to your house. No, thank you. I want to go there, and I want to look at the apples before I buy them. I want to look at the oranges before I buy them. And, yes, I know you're not supposed to pick them up and squeeze them, but sometimes I do. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The only other American that Donald Trump could beat was Hillary Clinton. And of the 350 million Americans, the only American that Hillary Clinton could possibly beat was Donald Trump. They were perfect for each other. They were the only two candidates that could probably knock the other off because they were flawed in a lot of ways, in many ways. So when Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, said on the weekend in an interview that if he had run for a third term, which of course is not constitutionally allowed, but if he had, he says he would have won easily, no problem. I would have taken a third term, no problem at all. And by the logic that the two who were competing couldn't beat anybody but each other, you would have to say that perhaps he's correct. Now, it was also, you would think, when President Obama makes that comment, it was a slap at Donald Trump. It was a backhanded slap at Hillary Clinton and her campaign. It was a compliment to himself, in a sense. 
And you have to believe that maybe, and we're sitting up here in Canada where we have a different view on everything that's happening in the States, but you have to think that he's probably right. There's got, he's probably not way off. And again, we're looking at this from a Canadian perspective, but I don't know that there would have been an overwhelming victory, but he's probably right. But you know what? Not everyone may agree. Michael Diamond is a principal of Upstream Strategy Group and a conservative pundit. He joins me now. Michael, thanks for doing this. Happy post-Christmas, post-Boxing Day, all the rest. It's, a, it's great to have that over, isn't it? <laughs> we were just talking about Boxing Day. Were you out there fighting with the people, literally fist-fighting with the people to get stuff? I, I went to a Canadian tire, and they had nothing that I needed, a whole bunch that I didn't need, and I had a full cart, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, no thanks, and walked out. But there was luckily no fist fighting this year. Oh, you know, it's a good thing. It's 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 a nice thing to finish a whole season and not have had a fist fight. <laughs> uh, Michael, is President Obama right? Would he have easily won a third term if he ran? So, as you were saying, the two least likable candidates in the history of polling in presidential elections squared off against each other, and that is why Donald Trump had a chance against Hillary Clinton. That's why Hillary Clinton had a chance against Donald Trump. So on the surface, it's very easy to say that any other Republican or any other Democrat, including uh, President Obama, would have defeated the, the other party's nominee. But you've got to remember that one thing we learned about Donald Trump over the course of the last 16 months as he got in the race, he is a very skilled political operator, and he had great skills at attacking his opponent. So we never got to see him call him, call Donald Trump called the president, little Barack Obama, crooked Barack Obama. We never saw any of the innuendo he used against his opponents in the primary and against Hillary Clinton in the uh, general election. We never saw the attacks. There was no investment of time, money, or any other effort into uh, destabilizing Barack Obama as a candidate for re-election. So it's impossible to say, of course, but on the surface, it's a sensible argument. Well, and again, we in Canada, we have a very different view on this. I think if, you know, if we were voting, Barack Obama wins in a landslide. Most Canadians would have voted for Barack Obama over but Donald Hillary Trump. Clinton would have won. Exactly. Uh, no, exactly. Landslide. We, though, I think it's fair to say when you look at the polls, when you look at what was driving this race, we don't have here the sense of clearly what the dissatisfaction was with the state of their own country that Americans had down there, which opened the door for a Donald Trump, which may have made a a runoff with Obama maybe a little less of a runaway or maybe a lot closer than we would anticipate. Well, exactly, because in Canada, we have our own concerns, but the economic woes of the United States, the very real concerns of folks in in the Midwest that turned out to vote for Donald Trump and flip states that hadn't gone Republican to Ronald Reagan, like Michigan, uh, to the Republican Republican column, were were very real. And it was not just a rejection of Hillary Clinton. It was a rejection of George W. Bush, and it was a rejection of uh, Barack Obama, and just the whole political establishment because if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. Folks wanted to change. Donald Trump, like no other candidate uh, in, in recent times, offered that full departure from the, uh, the political status quo. So on the positive side, if you're Barack Obama, if you're a Barack Obama supporter, if you believe him, the, the thing that maybe the biggest thing, I think, that would back up what he's saying 
is that if you look at the African-American vote mm-hmm. that came out in the election, they did not come out in the numbers for Hillary Clinton that they did for Barack Obama. And if you look at just two states, Michigan and Florida, that were razor thin margins and that have a large African-American population that did not show up in the same numbers, you bring back Obama's core group of support, he wins those states and he wins the election. Look, Obama levels, and I haven't actually looked at the numbers exactly, but Obama levels of African-American turnout against Donald Trump may have flipped the state like Georgia as well. So that, that's a huge factor. And for the last, the two midterm elections during Barack Obama's presidency, we, we were told the Republicans had an advantage because it's the Democratic coalition shows up during presidential years. And what we've learned this year, it was a very easy reminder, something that we should have all caught on to earlier. It wasn't a Democratic coalition. It was a Barack Obama. Obama coalition and the African-American numbers we saw under Barack Obama probably won't come out in terms of turnout. The Democrats will still hold a huge majority of those votes, but in terms of turnout of the overall electorate, it will continue to be lower than it was for the two Obama elections until there's a candidate who's as inspiring to that community as Barack Obama. So that's the easy one, and that's where we would come at it. But let's look at it from the other side, because I think there is an argument to be made that if Obama had run against Donald Trump, as you said, which we don't really know because it wasn't, we're not comparing apples and apples. He, Donald Trump was not taking aim at Obama and doing all the stuff. But there is an argument to be made, I think, that this would have been a lot closer than we expect, or maybe he might not even be right. And here's why I bring that up. First of all, a lot of the things that Trump pointed at, he was directing them at Hillary, but it was the Obama... Um, policies and the Obama legacy that were being targeted that were on the Obamacare and other things. So there were some rejections of things that Obama had done. And the second thing is the Daily Mail, Daily Mail, the uh, British paper, points out that in Barack Obama's term in office, the Democrats lost 1,030 seats in state legislatures, governor's mansions, and Congress. You can't keep that going and continue to hold on to power forever. Exactly. The the midterm elections for Barack Obama were just devastating disasters, especially 2014, where uh, for the first time in his presidency, he lost control of both houses of Congress. And you got to look at those damn those races on the local and state level, which which in later years pay big dividends to the party that takes over uh, state houses for a number of reasons. One, it's the state houses that redraw the lines for congressional seats within that state. So that's going to mean that when those districts are redrawn, you're going to have some Republican advantages there. So there's there was an underlying Republican advantage because of Barack Obama. There's a lot of resentment. And if you look at where Donald Trump attacked Hillary Clinton, there were a number of big things. One, incompetence on foreign policy. Now, in fairness to Secretary Clinton, her foreign policy and President Obama's foreign policy prior to her becoming his Secretary of State were pretty different. And she deferred to the President that the Secretary of State must do. She was his servant, not her own. And uh, so she was tarred and feathered for that. Obamacare, now she, she should wear some of that because she had been pushing for similar policies for a very long time, and, uh, and, and economic woes. And that wasn't just an attack on Barack Obama. It was an attack on George W. Bush. It was an attack on Bill Clinton and NAFTA and really the entire political establishment. So she had to wear all that. It's, it's tough to, you know, she, she had the legacy of Barack Obama, and she was literally married to the legacy of Bill Clinton. And Donald Trump had to wear nothing that any party or president or candidate for office had ever done in the past because he had no problem discarding them and throwing them under the bus. 
people will blanch. I know, I know people are going to blanch at what I'm going to say next, but we people are going to hate Donald Trump, and we know they do. We know there's tons of hatred out there for him, but is he as a as a politician and now potentially as a president to be? Is he generally being underestimated, or or you know is he just so unorthodox that we really don't know what he's going to be at all? So I think those aren't mutually exclusive. So yes, he's absolutely been underestimated. The number of people who said he couldn't possibly win that election who are still pointing out that he, in their opinion, didn't really win the election when the legal matter that all that really, pardon me, all that really matters is quite different. On the uh, on the unknown quantity, exactly. Like you know, we're going to have to wait and see how he is as president. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions. I think uh, a lot of people had a lot of opinions as his as, as to his likely success as a candidate. That me, for example, I did not think he'd ever get into the race. I didn't think he'd be nominated as a Republican candidate, and I didn't think he'd win the election. So I've been wrong each and every step of the way with Donald Trump. So I'm willing to take a deep breath and say, you know, so far this transition isn't nearly as ridiculous as I was expecting it to be perhaps good things are on the horizon. How much of this comment that Barack or that President Obama made about that he would have won, how much of this was a slam at Hillary Clinton and her campaign? You know, it's strange because their their relationship is obviously very, very tricky. And they had that very heated and nasty primary battle against each other in 2008. So I think Obama also saw that his legacy was lost. Uh, but what he needs to remember is that presidents ultimately and politicians in general ultimately elect their successors. And if they mm. if they are popular and if they if they work for the interests of the country at that time, their endorsement's going to matter a great deal, and they're going to be able to get their chosen uh, their chosen successor elected. If they're not, they're going to elect someone who's the uh, antithesis of what they stand for. And that's what we've seen here. So he, he, he might want to blame Hillary Clinton. He definitely has to uh, shudder some of the responsibility for that. And perhaps, you know, you've got to look even deeper. If he thinks he could have won, he must think that Joe Biden or anybody else could have won, or Bernie Sanders. It was just a Hillary Clinton flaw. So, you know, the Democratic establishment that he enabled rigged the system. So Hillary Clinton was the only I was I was going to say that I mean one of the one of the issues is that he is still very popular personally he is very popular his policies may not be and so that kind of flies in the face of tradition that that a that you can have a president who is personally a, still a very popular guy even though what he has built may not be as popular in his country and you know but he personally wouldn't be that popular if he had to spend the last 12 uh, 12 plus months being married to those policies so Hillary Clinton who was not likable to begin with, according to polling, was then was then uh, her Barack Obama's policies became her running mate, and he would have had to live through that. So, is he likable enough? Does he seem like a great guy, a good father, you know, cool guy? Sure, but if then if guy, he's guy, he's the Iran and Cuba guy, that would have affected the personal popularity levels for sure. Just got a couple minutes left. Um, when George W. Bush left office, one of the things that he specifically said he was going to do and then did follow through on was he said, when I'm gone, this job is my successor's. It's not mine. I'm not going to get in the way of this thing. I'm not going to be out there publicly criticizing him because it's a tough enough job to do without having the previous owner of the Oval Office uh, firing barbs. Do you expect the same 
from Bill uh, from uh, Barack Obama. Do you expect that the same kind of thing? And I, I asked that specifically in connection. He's still in office, so he's still fully entitled to make these kind of comments that he made in this interview. But do you think, do you get the sense that he is going to step right back from public view and kind of disappear, or is he going to be a very vocal ex-president? You know, Barack Obama will be the first former president since Woodrow Wilson, who was incapacitated with a stroke, to remain in Washington, D.C. after leaving the White House. So I think there's a, a strong sign there that he will still be a vocal activist, and he will he will travel, and he will speak his mind. And it's really unfortunate. And, and there's a big contrast between uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama that is often uh, that is often uh, brought up this time of year. And it's a, in the eight years that George W. Bush was president, uh, the first family took their Christmas vacation to their ranch in Texas the day after Christmas. They, they did Christmas very low-key at Camp David. And what that allowed was for more of the Secret Service and the entire press pool to have Christmas at home in D.C. with their families and then depart the next day. The Obamas every year have gone to Hawaii for Christmas. And and that's the difference between George W. Bush and uh, Barack Obama. George W. Bush is a very humble man, is a very low-key man. Barack Obama, is there's a great deal of arrogance there. And he can understand it because there's got to be a great deal of arrogance to be to, to grow up with a, a, the son of a single mother in Hawaii come to the United States, get a, the best education anyone can get, and then become president with all of history and racism stacked against you. So he is an entirely impressive man, and his arrogance is justified. But that's, that's going to uh, mean, I think, that he will be a much different former president than uh, George W. Bush. He'll be more like what Jimmy Carter became a bit later. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Are you a diehard supporter of the monarchy? Do you believe that it's an integral part of this country's history and tradition? Or do you say, ah, come on, we've had it long enough, time to move along, time to modernize, time to cut loose and do some other things. Be our own country. We'll take your calls at the bottom of the hour to hear what you have to say about that. I would love to hear your opinion Either side on that one. In the meantime, and first up this hour, Robert Finch is with the Monarchist League of Canada. Uh, he joins us now. Robert, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. How are you? I'm, I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, so you saw this new poll. It's a global Ipsos Read poll that says 53% of us are in favor of doing what I just said, of stepping away from the monarchy once the queen passes away. Um, and the, the thing about this is that a year and a half roughly ago, there was another poll done by Forum that had the number pegged at 40%. So it seems, anyway, and I don't know the methodology exactly, but it seems the number of people who are now holding this position is going up. For a monarchist, in the wake of Christmas, this can't be a great Christmas present for, for someone like you, who obviously believes very strongly in having the Queen involved. Well, it's not quite coal, though. <laughs> I, I, I think that if you... Uh, I agree that the the headline, the, the national number figure that they use, 53%, is a bit concerning. But if you dig further, uh, I think it becomes less, uh, less uh, concerning. And that is... Uh, uh, and the reason for that is that that number, where 53% of uh, Canadians want to get rid of the monarchy, the national number, um, if you do the regional uh, breakdown, which is very important in polls like this, uh, you'll see that the support for getting rid of the monarchy, Republicanism, uh, is concentrated in one 
part of the country, and that is uh, Quebec, and that's for a multitude of reasons. I think uh, I think almost three quarters of uh, Quebecers polled uh, were in favor of getting rid of the monarchy. So and not too really, surprising. I mean, when you go all the way back to the Plains of Abraham for that one, to know why that happens. Exactly. There's historical reasons. There are a number of, uh, of reasons that that figure holds true. Well, now, once you look at the other regions of the country, uh, that's where you start getting a lot more, a, a complete different interpretation uh, of, of the numbers because you start seeing the, the majority of people in most of the other provinces uh, wanting to keep the monarchy. So it really is a, it, it really is a, the national numbers are a bit concerning at first glance, but once you dig down a little bit, uh, you realize that that, 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 that number is skewed. It's, uh, Republicanism is, is it's always inflated. Uh, in in these in these polls, so uh, particularly in this one, I, the the support for the monarchy is, was pulled quite low in uh, in Quebec, which uh, that's multitude of reasons, and it means we still have a lot of work to do. All right, before we get to the the difficulty, whether it's a difficulty or not, but the numbers from this poll, let me back up for just one second because there is some good news also coming out of this, and I want to deal with that first, and then get on to the other things. Uh, in this poll, or in another poll, I can't remember where I saw it now. Eighty percent of Canadians say they feel that the Queen is actually doing a very good job within her role of queening. I'm not sure what what the actual word is that she does, but they like the fact, they think she's doing a really good job and, you know, take any politician or any figurehead, they would kill for an 80% approval rate. They sure would. Uh, That's unheard of in politics. So, uh, yes, and and again, that number is not really surprising when you consider the fact that the Queen is, been, has been on the throne for so many years. He's really the only monarch that most Canadians yeah. who are alive today really know. Uh, so there's that constant uh, that, 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 that constant uh, reminder that we have her wherever we are, you know, whenever we spend our money, whenever we we, we, we uh, send a letter. There's, there's the rem- reminder that we have a queen. So the queen herself, you don't you don't become queen, you don't stay queen for sixty plus years, and don't and not, and not command that. Uh, that that sort of uh, that sort of approval. She's she's been on the throne for so long. She's done the job so well. So I'm not surprised by that numbers. And, I'm, and of course, I'm encouraged by those numbers. And you and it's interesting that this poll, the way it's worded, doesn't say we should get rid of the monarchy. It says we should get rid of the monarchy after the queen passes away. Because I do believe that if this was phrased, should we get rid of it right now? The number probably goes way down because of that very reason. The queen remains very popular. Exactly. Yeah, the queen. The queen. The queen carries her own. Um, I, I've met many Republicans who uh, admire and respect the queen. Uh, it's it, it, it's it's it, it's still a challenge in the sense, though, because we, we you know the queen is she's ninety years old. She's not going to be with us forever, unfortunately. So we still have to talk about the monarchy as an institution, not the monarchy uh, as simply the queen herself. It is, I mean, I, I've been kind of surprised by this because a couple decades ago, I don't remember how many years exactly it is, when Princess Diana died, there was a wide, widely held view that the Queen was cold, that she was aloof, that she was distant, and she was not seen nearly as favorably. And, and it's remarkable to me that she has actually been able to rebound and get to this place. I think it's a lot. I, I think I think that the, the, the palace has done a good job of... Uh, of modernizing uh, the monarchy, if you can use that word. I think that the Queen, uh, has, has, has her role has, while it stay, has stayed the same uh, for, for the 60-plus years, it's also uh, modernized a bit. It's become a little more accessible, a little less uh, formal. I mean, you, 
rigidness of what you would expect 30, 40 years ago. There's a little bit of a, a, a laid-back uh, approach to it. And I think that that sort of mentality has helped uh, has helped uh, you know help the queen be framed in a uh, a very warm uh, a very warm way. Plus the fact that she's aged and as into a grandmother. I mean, you've, who hates you know, grandmothers? Honestly, I mean, who hates grandmothers? Exactly. You've got to be pretty cold not to like a ninety-year-old. Right? <laughs> True. You're, no, you're absolutely right. It's just it's hard. Even if you don't like the monarchy, it's hard not to at least look at the queen and say, oh, you know, okay, you know, I can I can I can like her. And, and after that, you, you know, you get into your, your differences. But one of the other things, though, I wonder about this is, is this an age thing? Is this a demographic thing? When Are the people who are vastly supporting the queen and the monarchy, do they tend to skew more towards the same age as the queen? I, you know what? I, I don't know if this poll had the uh, demographic breakdown. Uh, they're always interesting to see. Um, a lot of the polls that I have seen, and certainly our membership uh, would speak to this, is that uh, support for the crown is, is strongest amongst, of course, the very elderly uh, people who grew up with this and it was you know, very important to them. But it's also very strongly supported by the youth. Uh, we have a lot of members in the league who are uh, still in high school. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's not, it's that middle, uh, you know, that, that, middle-aged boomer generation that sort of has this Republican uh, sentiment. Those are a lot of the polls that we have, that I've seen over the years, uh, indicates uh, that. So uh, there's a generation gap, but it's kind of a, we're kind of seeing the, uh, the early stages of a resurgence on the, on the youth end. I think that has a lot to do with, uh, with uh, you know, William and Kate, uh, the fact that you know, we had a royal wedding a few years ago. Uh, the fact that there's a two new royal babies in the picture, so that sort of have has, has sort of rejuvenated, and uh, we've seen an up an uptick of support for the monarchy amongst the younger generation. Well, and those are the people also not entirely, but those are the people who are watching Netflix and probably watching The Crown, which is that ten part Netflix miniseries, mm-hmm. which can't have hurt either. I can't believe. For sure, for sure. I mean, you get uh, you, you, you you get. I'm a firm believer. You know, you get when you get exposure, you get uh, you get results. And uh, when you have productions like The Crown, when you have royal visits, when you have royal weddings, when you have jubilee celebrations, that's going to uh, generate interest and it's going to generate support. So, uh, hey, we have a great opportunity next year for Canada 150. Let's have a royal tour, and uh, hopefully, we'll see these national numbers. Uh, uh, reflect uh, reflect that. You mentioned the Jubilee. You mentioned some of these other things. You mentioned royal tours. There was a um, the Huffington Post estimated based on costs and things like that that it costs Canadians about fifty million dollars a year. I think that was a little less than the Monarchist League estimated, but it's a, it's so it works out to a dollar fifty roughly or so a year for Canadians to support uh, the monarchy. Is that a lot? It's, I mean, it, it, when, when it's $50 million, it sounds like a lot. When it's $1.50 a year, it doesn't sound like, per person, it doesn't sound like that much. Yeah, you've got you've, you've to break these things down, and it really isn't. I mean, I, as, as I've always said, for less than a cup of coffee at your local Tim Hortons, you can get a complete system of government, a system that provides stability, a system that works. You get the pomp and circumstance. You get the history. You get the tradition. You get a nonpartisan head of state. You get all of that. You get all the benefits of an entire system of government for a buck fifty. I mean, to me, 
that's, that's, that, that, that's a good deal. <laughs> could we not have all that, minus maybe the pomp and circumstance, but could we not have all that without the monarchy, though? Well, you could. You could certainly have that. But I, I, first of all, I, I don't know if you would necessarily get it at the same price. I think it would be a little bit. Uh, you're not going to have any savings because you're still going to have to have a palace or office for the president to live in and whatnot have you. But you're also going to have a com- complete different system of government. Not saying that the system of government couldn't work, but it would be a different system of government than what we have now and that, what we've ever had. So I don't think most Canadians, I certainly wouldn't want to take that risk. So the, the poll suggests that it's about 47% who are in favor of keeping the monarchy after the Queen passes away. What, what would the royal family have to do to bump that up, to reclaim a more sense of, a, a wider sense of relevance within the broader Canadian community? What, what, what has to happen for that number to start going up rather than going down? I think that the, you know, a lot of people smarter than I have try to wrap their heads around this, but I, I, I think a very, uh, to me, it, we, we've got to figure out a way, they've got to figure out a way to uh, break Quebec, if, if, if they can, and I think we saw evidence of that when, uh, when uh, the Duke and Duchess of, uh, of uh, Cambridge were here, and they were in Quebec City, and they had enormous, enormous crowds. Um, I, I, if, if we could somehow figure out a way for the new members of the royal family, i.e. William and Kate, to be in Quebec, be in Quebec often, and be just simply be a part of, of, of Canadian life on a regular basis. More royal tours, so they don't have to be as long, they don't need to be two, three weeks in length. Uh, every year, uh, have a member of the royal family come here, do things in Canada often, and I think that that would start to, uh, would start to pay dividends down the road. If you were to somehow inject yourself into Buckingham Palace around the dinner table when all the royals are sitting there and the topic of Canada comes up, and if they were to hear about this poll, and if they were to hear about the fact that the monarchy might be cut off, or at least theoretically, do you think they care? Oh, yes, deeply, deeply. I think the Queen the, the, the queen takes her role as Queen of Canada very seriously. She's, she's well in tune uh, with what's going on uh, in this country. She's been to every part of the country. She's met so many Canadians over the years. She's, uh, she's, she's, I mean, the ironic part about it is that she's, she's met more Canadians and has been more, more parts than, than, to Canada than most people who, who, here who live here have. That's true. So uh, she knows this country uh, inside out. Uh, Canada is a very important, uh, a very important uh, country to, to the Queen and to, and to uh, the, the rest of the royal family as well. So uh, I, I think that, I mean, they would certainly say and rightfully so, that this would be a matter for Canadians themselves to decide, uh, but there's no question that they would be, uh, they, they would be um, disappointed uh, if, if Canada were to ever, uh, to go, ever go down the road of, of abolishing the monarchy. But you know, Scott, as I said, I think that that's, it, it really is a moot point. I think that it's a, it's a great uh, theoretical conversation, but uh, a whole lot more has to happen uh, than uh, seeing uh, than seeing the result of, some, of of one poll like this uh, before that that conversation can even start. Absolutely, uh, and and I think one of the interesting things about this is, and maybe one of the reasons why these numbers exist the way they do, we just had, as you know, we just had this um, debate slash vote slash choice, whatever it was, that we are finally going to have a woman on our currency. Viola Desmond is going to be placed on our currency on our bills. 
And what's funny about it is everyone was saying, oh, it's the first woman who's going to be on Canadian currency. It's the fir- We're going to finally have a woman on Canadian currency. And we've had the queen on the 20 for decades. And I'm wondering if part of this is it's just been around for so long that we've just sort of grown so accustomed that we don't even notice it anymore. And so, you know, how can it be that important if I don't even realize it's there? You got to ask yourself, God, I've, I've, and I've often asked myself, and yes, I'm a strong, strong monarchist, but who gets up in the morning uh, on any given day and uh, gets, in, gets, you know, brushes their teeth, has the morning coffee, and asks themselves, "My God, what can I do today to get rid of the monarchy?" <laughs> 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 it, it really is not a, a, a an issue that resonates with most Canadians. I mean, Canadians. Uh, get up in the morning, get their kids off to school, get, get ready and go to work and, and try to make a living and pay the bills. It, when we talk about the monarchy, it's, it's just not something that most people are overly concerned with because uh, for, for, for most of us, we like it. For a few of them, you know, whatever reason, they don't like it. But for the vast majority, it's, it's, it's there and it's not something that they're going to spend too much attention to trying to decide how they can dismantle it. We haven't seen protests downtown Ottawa, downtown Hamilton, downtown Toronto looking to get rid of the monarchy. Yeah, if there's a dissatisfaction, it is, I agree with you, it is largely a benign dissatisfaction. It's like, I don't, you know, if it comes up in a conversation, I'll state my case, but I don't, as you say, I don't uh, go through my life picketing the idea that we have a monarchy. I, at least I've never seen that. I've got it. Let me read you, just before we let you go, because we just got a minute or two left here. Let me read you something that a, a commentator wrote, and clearly he is not a, uh, a monarchist. He's actually a spokesman for the uh, Citizens for a Canadian Republic. So, you know, I mean, you're going to disagree with him, but let me just read what he says and tell me your, your response to this. This is his quote. It seems preposterous that a 21st century independent democratic country like Canada still has a foreign monarch, a colonial master, as our nominal head of state. It's confusing and humiliating that Canada still has to pay deference to a monarch across the sea. We'll always have our history as a British colony, but at some point you evolve out of this in the same way children moving out of their parents' basement, countries move out of the nest of the colonial mother hen. And I think that's the point Canada is at now. What do you say to that? It's a, it's, a, it's 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 not a view that is is, is correct though. It's, it's it's a it's a misinterpretation of the modern reality of of, of our arrangement with the monarchy. Canada is an independent country. We've been an independent country for years. We make our own laws. We do our own thing. Many times, contrary to what uh, is happening in Britain, we happen to share the same head of state. We don't just share the head of state with Britain, though. We share it with Australia, with New Zealand, Jamaica. There's about sixteen countries that have the Queen as the head of state, but each of those countries are completely independent countries. They're independent uh, of the UK, they're equal to the UK, they're not in any way subservient to the UK. Those colonial days have long, long passed, so you can't, you can't ramp up that argument because there are no more colonial ties to cut. We just have a head of state that doesn't necessarily live here all the time. And in the 21st century, uh, in, in a world where we should be encouraging uh, international and global cooperation, let's not get so let's not get so narrow-minded with uh, with uh, with a nationalistic view that's going to hinder us. I mean, that's it's, it's not something that really is re- based in reality. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.